This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Friend Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital Indian Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. I'm also registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products. I'm going to be joined for this half hour with Jesper Cole, who's a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. He's based in Tokyo. I've got to know Jesper over the last four to five years, and he really is the world's one of the premier thought leaders on Japan. Um, everybody tends to be bearish Japan. Jesper is not the uh, the most bearish person on Japan today, um, and. You know, I'd say you know much more optimistic on the future of Japan, the markets, the economy than most people are. Um, and Japan is you know one of these things that comes in and out of favor very often, Jesper, and uh, also very tied to global trade, global monetary policy. But let's just check in. How are, what are your thoughts on Japan today? Oh, I am extremely uh, confident that uh, Japan is going to be a source of positive surprises, both in terms of economic strengths uh, as well as global competitiveness of corporations, and ultimately in terms of investment performance. And so what, when, when people have fallen out of love with Japan, I mean, from a flow perspective, positioning is, is really light, a lot of negative sentiment. What, where do you think people are are, why are they so negative? I think, look, uh, you know, the point about positioning uh, needs to be re-emphasized. And you actually find that global investors today are as underweight Japan uh, in their global portfolios as they were at the time of the Fukushima disaster. Mm. Uh, specifically, they're about uh, 8% underweight relative to the global uh, weight that Japan has. And it's very, very interesting. Um, I mean, obviously, the Japanese equity market has been underperforming, particularly the U.S. market, uh, over the last year and a half. But the positioning on its own, I think, makes the Japanese market very interesting. And then much, much more importantly is you actually do see a big success of Abenomics in the form of domestic strengths. Um, Obviously, the industrial sector, the exporters, are being hit by the global downturn, um, you know, and that's reflected you know, in the earnings revisions that we got from the car makers, you know, from some of the electronic companies. But against that, the domestic small and medium-sized sector, uh, the domestic service sector, is actually powering ahead, showing growth rates steadily of around 2 to 2.5%. And actually, when you go back in time, this is the first time in 30 years that there is a decoupling, the industrial sector being pulled down by the global business cycle, 
illegal, but the Japanese local economy, the Japanese tertiary sector, the non-tradable goods sector holding up and actually continuing to expand. And that's the exciting part about Japan, because from a global perspective, you've got a de-linked, you've got a decoupled asset class in the sense of small and medium-sized companies. And, and you know, we, we were at a conference this week where one of the uh, the Harvard professors, uh, Paul Sheard, was talking about the economy as a it's like a value stock that the economy sort of always seems to punch below its relative weight, which is already you know a third largest economy in the world in, in dollar terms, if I if we have that right, and and just it tends to keep disappointing, like value versus growth in some ways. I mean, where where do you see? Um, so it's very, very interesting, right? I mean, you know, you've got, uh, you know, the equity market, right? Um, you know, where there is has been that disappointment, and you've seen it, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's very interesting just to 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 mention a couple of numbers. The EPS, right, earnings per share for the Topics Index has gone from 25 to 125, a new historic high. But the price earnings multiple has gone from 25 down to down to 12 times. Yeah. So I'm delivering growth in terms of earnings, but the global perception or the investor perception is that, no, you know, you do, you're sweating your assets, you're making more money, but you're not showing me the dream, right? And that's exactly, I think, where Japan gets very interesting. Uh, it is a value stock, right? But that value is now being unlocked. Very, very important. And you've got the unlocking of the value, not just in terms of the dividend growth, the share buybacks growth, but very, very importantly, you've got Japan as a heaven for activist investors. And it's very interesting. We just in June had you know the bulk of the general shareholders meetings, and you found a record number, more than 70 investors put specific proposals to Japanese corporations, um, you know, changing the structure of the board, increasing outside directors, um, you know, and actually beginning to shed some of the non-core assets um, of Japanese corporations. So you've got the capital stewardship, rising dividends, rising share buybacks, and now you actually get the operational restructuring with the top leadership of corporations opening up to outside directors, outside experts, and as a result, a lot of the old taboos are actually starting to be cracked open. Now, now this capital return to shareholders, so dividends and buybacks, is one of the things you know a lot of people like, and they are increasing dividends and buybacks uh, now, but the, but still from a low base. So if you think about, I think the numbers were 30 percent as their aggregate payout ratios. You know, some of the mega banks are getting closer to 50, which is the, you know the average of Europe, um, and compared to like a negative JGB yield, where you could say, well, that start motivating Mr. and Mrs. Watanabe to say, I don't need negative deposit yields. I need to to get some of this growth in in two and a half three percent dividend buybacks plus growth, um, is that going to happen? No, I think absolutely, and I think you know the pressure points that have been built up, uh, you know, are now tangible. Um, you know, you do have management change. You've got empirical. I mean, look at the the amount of share buybacks year to date uh, is basically double of what it was year to date last year. Dividend growth is running at around 10, 12 percent. So very nice, very very steady. Um, you know, so the unlocking of the value is coming 
through. And Jeremy, let's just be very clear what the ultimate driver behind that is. It is actually the Japanese public pension scheme. You've got the GPIF, the government public pension system, which is the largest pension fund in the world, actively putting pressure on Japanese corporations um, you know, to improve their capital stewardship, to sell off non-core assets like the cross shareholdings, as well as sell off non-core businesses. It's very exciting. I mean, you look, for example, at one of the core companies of Japan is Hitachi Corporation, right? And Hitachi Corporation has now engaged KKR, the private equity firm, to actually restructure its business. I mean, that was mm. unheard of. That would have been a super taboo in the Japan of even five years ago. Now you've got Hitachi and KKR leading the way that, yes, we are going to be very, very globally competitive in terms of our operational businesses, and we are going to be very globally competitive in terms of our capital stewardships. So let's put some numbers to this. Uh, ROE in Japan is now running just shy of 10%. Uh, the last 15 years average was barely 3%. So you've already gone from 3 to 10%. And now you find that a majority of Japanese companies actually has an ROE target of 14%. Will they get there? I think absolutely, because you know, once the Japanese start doing something, they actually keep doing it. All they got to do is keep buying back more shares, and the equity goes down, and the return on their balance sheets, right? They just have these bloated cash balance sheets that yeah. they've just got to put to work. Exactly. They've got the bloated cash balance sheets, which, by the way, Jeremy, also give them a tremendous war chest to buy global corporations. And I mean, I'm very happy to make a bet with you that one of the Japanese Mega banks, right, is going to be in the market to buy, you know, one of the major American banks pretty soon. Interesting. Um, do you have a do you have a speculation on uh, how? To, uh, I, I personally, as a as an as a speculative investor, I would make a bet that Sumitomo Bank is going to buy Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo is one of the big uh, big U.S. brands. It's one of the famous Mr. Buffett holdings, but it's had some of its own issues and trouble. So, no, but look, now it used to trade at more than two times book, right? Now, as it's getting closer to becoming, you know, more of a value stock, right? Yeah. That's exactly. Don't don't. So, what's the play from the the Japanese banks to buy the American banks? They want more global revenue. Like, yeah, what's their absolutely? Their... And this now it gets very interesting, right? Because obviously the Japanese banks are stuck uh, in an environment where the central bank is not just conducting quantitative ease, but is actually targeting, uh, is capping uh, the ten-year bond yield at ten basis points, right? So net interest margins, you know. Can cannot grow in the Japanese domestic economy. So Japanese banks are forced into the global carry trade using their yen deposit funding to extend credit into the rest of the world. And very interesting now, for three years running, Japan is actually the biggest creditor to non-China Asia. So you look at Sumitomo Bank, you look at Mitsubishi Bank, you look at Mizuho, you actually do see that their global portfolio is now growing very aggressively. 
What is missing is a strong foothold in the United States of America. Mitsubishi Bank, as you know, owns Union Bank. And Mitsubishi Bank, by the way, people forget, owns 25% of Morgan Stanley. I remember right? that during the financial crisis. Exactly. Yeah. Mitsubishi was the white knight. So Mitsubishi Bank is already American in yeah. terms of its portfolio balance. Um, you know, the other two banks, Sumitomo and Mizuho, are very envious of that because they want, you know, the exposure to what ultimately remains the most dynamic global capitalist economy, which is the United States of America. So in my view, I think, you know, it's very likely that we're going to see, you know, uh, Sumitomo Bank actually making a bid for Wells Fargo if Wells Fargo continues to get cheaper. Very interesting. Now, you, you mentioned the BOJ holding the 10-year JGB yield at, you know, at a fixed number. And the resetting of global monetary policy is one of the fascinating things. And, and Japan has been experimenting with QE really now, you could say, for like two decades, pretty much. <laughs> and you know, they haven't really generated much inflation. Kuroda has been saying we're going to keep getting to our 2% inflation. Um, but it's also like showing a very interesting experiment in how they can refinance debt at very low rates, um, taking these long-term bond obligations, making it an obligation to the BOJ. What's your thoughts on the BOJ today? I mean, it's 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 absolutely fascinating. You know, I mean, first of all, you know, the the, the biggest beneficiary of uh, the Bank of Japan's monetary policy is obviously the largest debtor in Japan, which is the Treasury. Um, you know, in fact, you can show, uh, despite the fact that debt to GDP has gone from about a hundred percent twenty years ago uh, to almost three hundred percent right now, uh, interest expense has. Actually Actually fallen right mm. and is now less than one percent of GDP wow. which is which is quite amazing so you you're getting something for free and the second point that is important is that despite this unholy monetary experiment or sorry I'm German you know so my god you know monetizing debt uh, and capping 10-year bond yields at zero point uh, uh, at 10 basis points you know is, 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 is about as unholy as you can get but Empirically, is it causing any distortions? Yeah, what's and the, the answer is it's not. It's causing not inflation. It's not causing an asset bubble. It's not causing an, a collapse in the exchange rate. So for all intents and purposes, right, the fact that, yes, it is helping to reduce the unemployment rate, it is helping to improve domestic economic activity, it is helping to improve um, you know, domestic real estate asset pricing. From that perspective, Bank of Japan's policy is actually very, very successful. And so this is this gets into one of these core economic debates. This MMT, you know, should the governments just print some money and do all sorts of unlimited spending? Now Japan is trying to balance that. They're raising some consumption taxes, which is also a hotly debated. Should they um, should they try to rein in the fiscal side while they're doing all this other monetary side? Shouldn't they just let it go since? No, it seems I, to be working I think, there. I think, in my personal opinion, I think just letting it go, right, and uh, you know, continuing with the experiment until you get constrained by inflation. Because at the end of the day, and you know, the MMT people are very clear about this, right? Uh, it's like, what is your constraint? Your constraint is not the borrowing ability from the government. Your constraint is inflation. 
right? And right now, you know, you are very, very hard pressed to find any forms of inflation. It's very interesting. Wages and incomes are starting to grow, but true pricing power, right, where you actually can show that, uh, you know, demand and supply actually allows genuine pricing power is limited to one sector in Japan, which is the hospitality sector. And it's interesting because the hospitality sector is boosted by the boom in inbound tourism that we have, um, you know, so it's actually an external factor, right, that is contributing to pricing power rather than anything in the domestic internal economy, you know, spurred on by the Bank of Japan. We're talking with Jesper Cole, a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree from our, our Tokyo locations there. And, and it's, it's fascinating on what you know what's happening with inside the Bank of Japan, thinking about you know what are all their different monetary policies. They've not just been buying bonds, they've actually been buying ETFs and, buy, and supporting equities, you know, and the idea was to lower the equity risk premium, make people show show people that it's sort of the water is safe. Right. You can buy stocks. But now do you think it's starting to have the reverse impact? Now they've been doing it for a while, people are starting to worry. Can they unwind all these ETFs that they bought? And I know you've had some some controversial proposals on that. Or no, but, but Jeremy, this is very interesting, right? Because I mean, it, I'm bullish on Japan. I think there's uh, you know tremendous uh, you know positives that are unfolding both in the economy and in Japanese asset markets, right? But the single biggest pushback I get from global investors is the Bank of Japan. Uh, the Bank of Japan now owns about 5% of the equity market through its ETF buying program. And they have got some legacy equity that they own. So all in, they own about 8% of the Japanese market. And by the time of the Tokyo Olympics, the Bank of Japan will actually own about 10% well, of the Japanese market. It's interesting you mentioned the legacy equity. So they had they already had 3%. Yeah. Have they ever sold any of that? No, no. And then you know the the, the legacy three percent outside what the Bank of Japan owns outside of the ETF buying program is uh, you know really small caps companies, right? That were absorbed from the banks when the banks were legislated uh, to unwind their cross shareholdings, right? So that was a buffer that was being created. Now the ETF buying program, uh, you know, was designed as a trigger for a portfolio rebalancing for the private sector. It's okay. The Bank of Japan sanctions an outright exposure via ETFs to the Japanese indices, to the Japanese equity market. Um, you know, why don't private pensions, why don't private individuals actually begin to follow through? I mean, so if you're speculating as to what is the upper limit where they say enough's enough, we don't need any more equities. If you and I go to the Bank of Japan today, uh, they will tell you there is no limit. Right. They could just uh, become, they just take it private. They would basically, you know, I mean, it's, I call it, it's the largest experiment in financial socialism, right, uh, that we've seen. Um, and it's one know, way to do it. No, but it's very interesting, right? So I'm, I'm actually, you know, I've been doing a lot of thinking about it, and I'm, I'm, I'm part of an advisory group there, um, you know, because, again, the, the pushback I get is, uh, you know, that yes, individual stock pickers love Japan. They see the value, they see the change in corporate governance, they see the change in corporate strategy. You want to own individual Japanese corporations. But the asset allocators always push back, said, hey, I see what you're saying in terms of the value attraction, but I'm not going to buy, I'm not going to go overweight an asset market where at some point the central bank is going to start dumping stocks. Um, now, how can you fix the problem, right? Um, you got to find somebody who's got money, 
and whom I can incentivize not to sell. And who's got money in Japan is very simple. It's the people who are over 65. People over 65 own more than 70% of the financial assets, which, by the way, is the same everywhere in the world except in Silicon Valley. Um, you know, So it's the old who have the assets, right? When you're old in Japan, what is your biggest financial concern? Your biggest financial concern is inheritance tax because inheritance tax in Japan is basically 60%. So if the Bank of Japan could get together with the Ministry of Finance and come up with a scheme where you as the individual buy the ETFs from the Bank of Japan, then those ETFs become exempt from the estate tax. You could sell this uh, BOJ overhang right within 24 hours and there would be no negative impact on the market whatsoever. So why haven't they done it already, Jesper? Because, as you know, you be more uh, I, mean, I always joke, it's like, you know, the Bank of Japan loves me, the Ministry of Finance hates me, uh, because obviously the Ministry of Finance does want the tax revenues, right? Yeah. If you actually calculate it out, um, you know, the, 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 the actual gain, you know, on that, uh, the actual revenues foregone, right, would actually be very, very small, right? So, you know, we shall see. Yeah, right? what's interesting is good to have you lobbying there. I mean, I mean, at some point they may have to. They say they can keep buying, but like, what what do you think the upper limit is? Is it so if they own eight no, percent I mean, today, but, is but it fifteen? But, but think about it this way, right? I mean, you know, and, and this is this is you know sort of a dangerous. We live in a dangerous world where there's a lot of scrutiny applied, um, you know, on individual countries and their monetary policy. Right? Are you manipulating the currency or not? And I mean, you know, if the central bank owns, you know, uh, almost ten percent of the of the equity market, how easy is it, for example, for the People's Republic of China to accuse Japan of basically being one gigantic state-owned enterprise? For sure, and I mean that is the to talk about manipulating. I mean, they that that is part of all these trade negotiations is a is a currency target and is. China weakening his currency too much. Is Japan weakening his currency? You had Trump say to Draghi that he's trying to weaken the euro and no. the DAX is rising. And, um, and this is this is where Japan is very interesting, right? Is uh, you know is that actually you can show very easily that there is massive manipulation of domestic asset markets via the Bank of Japan buying ETFs, via the Bank of Japan buying bonds, via the Bank of Japan buying corporate bonds, right? Um, but. Translating that into an impact on the currency, you cannot show. If you have perfect foresight of what the Bank of Japan is going to be doing, you cannot design a trading rule that makes you consistently money on trading dollar-yen, which is very, very interesting. It's not the economics and the finance that you and I learned, right? You're supposed to have, with this degree of asset market intervention, you're supposed to have a collapse of the currency. It's not happening. For all intents and purposes, the yen is a relatively strong currency rather than a weak one. It is interesting. I mean, how how much of this is driven by, by where is the strength coming from? I mean, it's still one of these quote unquote risk on markets where the yen goes down, risk off markets, the yen goes up, and that's all it seems to be driving it. Well, it's funny. I call the yen, specifically on the currency, I call the yen uh, the love child of global macro speculators. And it's very simple. I mean, the yen is a funding currency, right? So if I want to do a trade in Australia, if I want to do a trade in Brazil, my cheapest source of funding is actually in yen. And Japanese banks are relatively unconstrained, you know, by uh, 
you know, by by uh, by global rules. And so, if I'm a macro speculator and I do want to borrow five billion dollars, uh, uh, you know, I can actually do that in the in the yen market, and then of course use that yen funding to take on my global positions, whether it's in Brazilian real or in Turkish lira or wherever. Then the moment it becomes risk off, right? Um, I scramble to pay back my yen loan, which is exactly why the yen is strengthening. Yeah. So it's ironically, the yen is not a safe haven currency. It's exactly the opposite. When it's risk off, it's the speculators cutting their losses. As you think five years down the road and all these impacts of what the Fed's going to do, the European Central Bank, China, Japan, and those are the four big blocks. Like, How do you think, like, where on a macro basis should these markets, the yen type, be? It's it's interesting, right? From my perspective, I think you know when you start off with with benchmarks like purchasing power parity, right? Um, you know, I think it's a fact that you know you've got uh, lower structural inflation in Japan than you've got in the rest of the world, right? Um, and for all intents and purposes, you know, from that perspective, from a purchasing power parity perspective, the yen should be a gradually appreciating currency. Now, against that, you've got this monetary experiment plus the record debt finance that is going on. So for all intents and purposes, I actually think that in five years' time, in my personal opinion, I think that the yen is going to be a weaker currency. Right, um, because I do think that at the end of the day, uh, you know, monetary orthodoxy is likely to prevail, and driving the yen weaker, in my opinion, is going to be an increase of capital outflows. We mentioned earlier in the program, you know, Japanese uh, banks, Japanese corporations using their yen cash balances for greater global M&A activity. That's going to be a pickup in capital outflows, and then from a portfolio rebalancing perspective. I think that you know the younger generation of Japanese, you know, diversifying uh, the risk portfolio, um, you know, this, their securities portfolio into global securities is going to be an additional force uh, of global outflows. And it, it, we're, we're talking with Jesper Cole, an advisor, senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. It's interesting, Jesper, on this capital outflows and the global dynamics. I mean, one of the when you think about the dynamics, we talked about the increasing dividends and buybacks of companies that's trying to lure the, the local investor in. You made some comments about how why they've avoided the equities that they're not dumb. Talk about well, the, this is, the. I mean, this is this is this is sort of the the the, 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 the best kept secret in Japan, you know. And, and I mean, the reality is that Mr. and Mrs. Watanabe um, are not stupid. Uh, the costs of buying a financial product in Japan are still outrageous. Uh, last year, the average cost of the average financial products uh, bought uh, by a retail investor in Japan was 430 basis points, 4.3%. It's unbelievable. It's, it's unbelievable. It's where America was, you know, maybe 20 years ago. It does make me want to move to Japan and start a... No, you know what is, interesting? What, is, what is interesting, Jeremy, it's actually the management fees of the products, right, are running at around 1.1%, right, um, which is more or less, I mean, it's a little bit more expensive than in the U.S., right, but, you know, for all intents and purposes, it's not the asset managers that are egregious, right, um, it is actually all the loads, all the distribution charges, yeah. right, uh, that are coming into play, and so the FSA, the Financial Supervisory Agency, you know, 
toying with the idea of introducing a stringent fiduciary rule, right? Um, you know, that really, I think, is going to be required to actually lower the costs, um, you know, for Japanese investors um, and be, help to begin uh, some of this massive savings pool that has been accumulated. And so is that robo-advisor that we see in the U.S. starting to, I mean, I know on some of my trips there with you before, we talked with some small robos. Are they yep. are they starting to gain so more the, share? The answer is absolutely. You actually find that uh, self-directed investment, which obviously doesn't have these high loads, right, um, is now outpacing, right, uh, investment by the, uh, you know, traditional wealth managers, the Nomuras, the Daiwas, uh, the Nikos of this world. And it's exactly the younger generation uh, the people in their 20s and 30s, you know, who are taking matters into their own hand. They are fed up with paying these 4%, 4.3%, uh, you know, loads uh, for their investment. And using robo-advisors, you know, for the younger generation is something that's beginning to take off. And what about, you know, the other dynamic uh, is crypto. And so, you know, they, they seem to be speculators of massive. They like to currency speculate, to your point, on out outflows. They, they buy, no, but like, it's interesting, Turkish really. bonds. But and, it's very interesting, right? I can buy, I can buy, you know, on the currency market, right? I am one of the cheapest trading platforms in the world for retail investors, right? But for funds, right, I've got you know, still one of the highest cost, you know, structures because of the distribution platforms that are there, right? Mm -hmm. So it's so it's interesting. Um, and so, so a lot of people, you know, I mean, why are Japanese such, you know, I mean, look, there's a, there's a there's an estimated fifteen thousand, eighteen thousand households in Japan who are avid day traders, right? And you know, they like to speculate, uh, they like to take risk, um, and uh, you know, the crypto part has allowed a very very cost effective way, right, uh, to actually uh, engage in a highly volatile asset class. Hmm. So as you think you know, forward to what are the, we've talked about a lot of things, from the Bank of Japan to the global dynamics, the capital flows. So if we were to summarize you know, the, where you are in terms of, of the markets and, and certainly the domestic economy is something you've been talking about for a while. Look, I mean, the, the, the key issue is, right, I mean, in the here and now, practically, right, number one, look at the endogenous strengths that is unfolding in the Japanese domestic economy. You've got the rise of a new middle class, you've got better jobs, higher incomes for a younger generation, you've got onshoring, you've got operating profit margins, you know, for industrial companies are now higher in Japan than they are outside of Japan. And as a result of that, you've got leading companies like Nissan Corporation actually building new factories in Japan rather than elsewhere in the world world. And then last but not least, you've got a tremendous political and policy stability. I mean, Prime Minister Abe, Bank of Japan Governor Kuroda, these are not ideologues. They are pragmatists who are prepared to run experiments like the Bank of Japan is doing. But in terms of providing a steadfast tailwind for the domestic economy, for small and medium-sized companies, for entrepreneurs, that's the real power. That's the real force that you've got unfolding in Japan. And then it's compounded by the capital stewardship of corporate managers, which is re-emphasized by the rise in activist investment that is actually going on in Japan. So I think you've got a golden, you know, layup here, right, um, you know, for a 
uh, you know, for an asset class, Japanese equities, that are actually capable of decoupling, um, you know, from the rest of the world. And that's ultimately, you know, what we're all looking for. You want a non-correlated asset. And I think that's where particularly Japanese small and medium-sized companies, right, that's the asset class that allows you uh, to have a desynchronized, right, an uncorrelated global asset. Very good. Jesper, always a pleasure to catch up. And, and I'm with you that, you know, it's been one of the more unloved opportunities. you got to go not where all the flows are going sometimes. you got to buy value and, and what can get better. Where can things just improve from, you know, the bottoms? I think that uh, hopefully with Japan in that spot. Thanks for coming on our show today. Thank you for having me, Jeremy. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.